guys, how are you? This is Rico Cortez from Whitcast. This is a regular podcast in which we bring different types of people to talk about different types of topics. And today we have a very important friend of mine in which she's taught me everything I know. Her That's right. Tina <laughs> Dye. Uh, we want to talk about her book and I want to add her here to the to the, uh, to the the podcast or that we want to talk about. Okay, Dina, it's always nice to see you. I've been reading part of your book. Uh, you just got a bra. I got all your books, the whole collection. I got them. And now you're really smart. No, I'm really smart. <laughs> and I'm, I want to, I want to read the one that you just released, which is called what? The temple revealed in Noah's Ark from okay. chaos to order. Okay. One of the things for the audience who don't know you, Dina, give us a little background, please. Okay. Uh, so I will spare you the whole story, but I grew up in Ottawa, Canada, a conservative Jewish home. And when I was quite young, my parents moved into a Gentile neighborhood. So I was exposed to some things uh -huh. that I didn't know about previously. I did go to Hebrew school, Orthodox Jewish summer camp, and uh, we celebrated the festivals as a family. We went to the synagogue regularly. So there was, you know, two things going on in my life. Um, later on, I got involved in the New Age movement pretty deeply, studied a lot. I'm, you know, I'm a researcher at heart, so yeah. I studied the whole New Age world. And that was all kind of through high school and into my early 20s. Uh, about the time I was about 25, 26, I uh, put a backpack on my back and spent about four or five years in Europe and traveling all around the world by myself. <laughs> I did spend about six months in Israel in 1974, which was, you know, right after the Yom Kippur War. So that was pretty significant. And so it was around 1979 is when I finally met Yeshua the Messiah. It's a long story. If you go to my website, there is a my testimony there. But once there, you know, it was hard to find and connect with a lot of Jews, although there was a period in which there was sort of a revival amongst uh, the Jews that I knew. So I, you know, was exposed to Jews for Jesus. And so the Chertoff family out of Pennsylvania and things like that. But I recognized that the need to connect the Gospels and the Epistles to the Torah, that was right out of the gate. I saw that. Now, I didn't really know much about the New Testament. I had never read it. Mm -hmm. So when I read it fresh, I realized how many things were, the Torah was speaking of, how many idioms and how many uh, different uh, connections there were, the festivals and stuff. It, it was so clear to me having grown up in it. So mm -hmm. that was, you know, I launched my world. And now it's 42 years I've been doing this, connecting the two. I've been writing books and traveling, teaching. The ministry is called Foundations in Torah. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. That's so, you, so you're basically uh, focusing on educational platform, writing books. How many books do you have at this point? Well, I have three books in the series, Temple Revealed in Creation, The Temple Revealed in the Garden, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark. But I also have some other books. I have one called, it's a workbook series called Study to Show Yourself Approved. I also have a workbook called Bonhoeffer from, um, oh, <laughs> I don't even remember the title, uh, From Tyranny to Freedom. And the, the book goes along with the DVD series. So basically those five. Great. Well, I appreciate you hanging out with me. I'm, you know, I always enjoy your books and I, I read them, except for this one. I'm getting ready to sit down and read it. I was teaching this week's Torah portion, which happens to be Noah. And, Imagine. <laughs> right? 
and what I did on Wednesday in Spanish, so I'm going to be teaching it tomorrow again to the English audience, but in Spanish, I was connecting. I was showing them the some things that we've discussed for years in regards to creation, how the, the story of Noah is all about a new creation motif. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but before we get into that, I want to remind the audience that the way you and I study, and you can chime in anytime you like, the way you and I study, and this is something that I started doing about 11 years ago, when I began to study ancient Near Eastern research, which for your PhD, I think you study that, right? You have a yeah. doctor, don't you? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's a D-man, not a PhD. Okay. So it's a doctor of ministry. And yes, I did spend some time studying the ancient world, Babylon, Assyria, and all that ancient Aries culture. And by the way, you know that changes your whole understanding of the Bible. Yes, yeah, because, absolutely. You know, John Walton make, made a statement. I'm reviewing the uh, genre teaching that he has on Genesis, uh, the whole Logos course that he has. And he made the statement that I've missed before. Uh, he said, when we study the Bible from the West, we are looking from the outside in. But the people in the Bible, writing the Bible, they understood the environment, the culture, the background, and the idioms. So they they understood. So the, the writer didn't have to over-explain certain principles right. and motifs. They all understood it. So exactly. you and I, what we try to do is try to allow people to study the bible by sharing them from the inside out so that we can get a greater understanding and um so understanding culture the narrative the metaphors just because we believe in certain metaphors does not mean that we're not disregarding the that we are disregarding the bible right but you and i know that the scripture was written in certain language that is foreign to us today and this psalm 93 is one of them yeah so let me read it and then you can just go okay. on and expound on it it's Psalm. it's actually in the prologue of your book and as i'm rereading it a scary part of it is i understand exactly what it's trying to say and that's kind of weird because i remember years back i will read this type of stuff and i'm going like whoop it went over my head okay yeah yeah your throne is established of all you are from everlasting the floods have lifted up O Adonai, the flood have lifted up their voice. The floods lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the sound of many waters. Yeah. Then the mighty waves of the sea. That is Psalms 93, verse 2 to 5. Now, let me ask you a question. How many hours can you teach on that those few verses? Well, in my whole book, which is why it's <laughs> the very first. <laughs> it's right. the very first scripture because it lays the foundation. Let me just mention for people, because the, the stories are all literal historical. Uh -huh. We've got real people living in real places doing real things. And but the writers are are focusing our attention on something specific. And as you said earlier, they don't see the need to add in every little piece of information. And so the the, the historical backdrop isn't necessarily what they're focused on, but we recognize it's there. But they want us to see something else. So these other aspects of it kind of should jump out off the page to us. This is what they're trying to communicate. So we have a lot of flood language, uh, raging rivers, water language in the scriptures. Events. And because, what's that? Events too. We have all these events that happen with water and many people don't even know that that's a resurrection, new creation motif. 
Yeah, absolutely. So right out of the gate in Genesis chapter one, we see the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And so that replays itself over and over again. Now, waters and raging rivers and floods came to mean for the ancient world, armies and nations, and really everything outside the sacred space and the boundary that God established with for his people. And so you see him here. He So the, the, the basic principle of creation is the establishment of a cosmic house, which encapsulates heaven, earth, and sea. And so often when you're seeing, uh, when God is talked about as the, the God of heaven and his king, his Messiah is the ruler over the earth. But then we have this area outside the boundary called the seas and the waters. But yet God, our God rules over all three domains, all three spheres. So he has sovereignty and rulership over the seas, over the nations, over that dominion. And so you see this right out of the gate in Psalm 93. The, his dominion is, is over the seas. And so that pattern, continue, I mean, we've got multiple examples. I don't know if you want to talk about any ones, any of the ones in particular, but that's, that's the backdrop. So the seas become the place of the deep, the deep representing the throne of, of the enemies of God, the rulers and kings of this world. So there's, there's just a lot of language related to that. So I, I, I was also doing a research on, you know, uh, Acts, I'm, I'm sorry, Exodus 14, when the Lord took Israel to the Red Sea and they were right near uh, Siphon. And mm -hmm. I began to look into the ancient Ugaritic uh, type of creation motif and also the battle against Yam Sea. Yes. And that is so prevalent to understand why God chose to take them to that location and, uh, and show his sovereignty over creation. I really like the way you open uh, the book. I like that, you know, I'm reading it uh, and, I, and I love the way you, um, you're trying to establish a visual. Yes. And, and I like that because sometimes when we read the Bible, now when I read it to me, it's all visual. Right. Um, but when people yeah. read it without the proper background, it's just letters, and you you think that just by going to the Hebrew language alone that you can finally get the full context. And I highly recommend that it's not necessarily true. You get a you get an insight on it, but you're not really understanding the whole backdrop. I love the way you open. You said Elohim spread his, Elohim spread his celestial robe over the cosmos to fashion a heavenly tent. I love that. And it says the master architect remeasure the heavens recalculated the firmament and counted counted out additional galaxies he stretches measuring rod over the entire earth to verify his dimensions and uh, he reset the boundary lines of his sacred space that is so significant language that once i understood it when i read the about the feast when i read about eating kosher when i eat about um um eating clean when i read about keeping the mitzvot and doing what god asked us man god is allowing us to enter his sacred space and then you continue and you say after reinstalling bars and gates and that separated the waters you mean the seven uh, pillars right mm -hmm. and says above from those below elohim once again declare his sovereignty over the cosmos the world was now firmly reestablished his kingdom reign overall, surrounding his throne of glory. Heaven's host of piercing stone proclaim, yours is the kingdom and power and the glory forever from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And that is such a powerful introduction because 
you just basically outlined what new creation motif is. And well, so let me just say, so the reason I added in recalculated, remeasured, et cetera, the, the statement I'm making is yes, Genesis one, he brought forth the perfect creation, a place for his presence. And then of course, Adam and Eve violated the sacred space. Right. But now with the Noah story, he is the, the emphasis here is that the Noah story is a story of recreation. Smack dab out of Genesis one, it's repeating itself. So that's why I emphasize this is the story of recreation in Noah. We, you know, it, the parallels between chapter eight and nine of uh, Genesis and one and two are, oh, yeah, yeah, they're like almost exactly parallel to. I was I was sharing it in Spanish and people were blown away, and I right. them, and I told them even the resurrection of Yeshua was found within the message of when the ark rested on Mount Ararat. It was, it's, it's, it's incredible because as we go, I have a feeling that going through your book is only going to allow me to get a greater insight into some of the other metaphor, metaphors that you use. You just mentioned one uh, about the sea representing mm -hmm. also the enemies and the yep. kingdoms. Yeah. Tell me a little yeah, bit. So the, the deep. So we see a right out of the gate of Genesis 1, the, the concept of God creating out of tohu vavohu that which was right. empty and formless and and scholars argue over whether you know is it disorder chaos whatever but but the, we have a sense of the destructive elements coming first mm -hmm. and then over the deep uh, the te home and every time we don't see that word used very often right. and it's uh, but it's certainly mentioned in the the song of moses when they're they're crossing the sea so the idea of the seas was uh, associated with with the monsters, the sea monster we have on the fifth day, and this idea of a throne or a um, the center of power for the nations was in the deep, and that's why when we see them crossing the sea and then the waters come back, that Pharaoh is returning to his place, his sphere, his domain, the oh, deep. That's cool. So, yeah, I, I, I never saw it like that. Yeah, and of course all his army and. So they're, they're just going back into the nations. I mean, you think that maybe there was a possibility for Pharaoh to join Israel, but chose instead to destroy Israel. Cool. So awesome. we have this destructive element that starts out. The same thing happens in the story of Noah. Um, and there's a lot of scholars that have done the sort of chiastic structure of Noah. And, you know, there's, there's a myriad of examples, but the first sec you know you know how the chiasm works you know so the first section of the chiasm is dealing with the same thing that we have in, in the early verses of genesis the destructive element and then it switches because the center of the chiasm is god remembered noah mm -hmm. and then it switches to the recreation new creation model that parallels genesis chapter one so that's the emphasis it's interesting that god remembered noah would be the center of the chiasm. And I would suggest, because in the ancient world, it's not about remembering and forgetting, oh, I forgot to buy bread. It's about bringing something into existence so that it can realize its creative element versus that which is destructive. So when you die, you're considered to be forgotten. You know, you go in the ground, nobody remembers who you are. Right. But the idea of remembered means to bring something to life 
So the fact that God remembered Noah, the, so the thing switches at that point, and now we see life coming forth again. Exact same pattern. And it's really the exact same pattern that we have when the children of Israel are in Egypt and they cross through the sea. It's the same pattern that we have when Joshua and, and they were all at the, the edge of the Jordan and they were going to cross over and the, the waters dried up and they're going to cross over carrying the tabernacle to, to right. Gilgal at that point. So it's going to find its fulfillment in Yeshua because we have multiple examples of him um, ha having rulership over the sea, over the waters. You know, we, we can read those stories and, and Yeshua walked across the waters and, you know, however that looked, I don't know, I wasn't there. But a greater message is of his sovereignty over the nations. Right. Okay, that's when right. he came. That was his purpose. Hebrews chapters... Hebrews chapter 10 tells you that, that yes. he officiated and sitting at the right hand of the father until he made all the enemies under his feet. Yep. Yeah. So that supports exactly. First it's, Corinthians 15 says the same thing too. So let me ask you a question in regards to remembering. Okay. Uh, because it, as you were saying, and I'm looking at the Bible here in the story of Exodus, because if we're connecting the redemption story as a new creation or recreation mm -hmm. story of Noah, and then God remembered. So yes. the same thing can be said in the story of redemption in Egypt. It's the same yes. blueprint. It's the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. He's bringing forth creation life. When anytime you see remembered, it's bringing that creative life into existence. So with that being said, then when we follow the Bible, it's a continual um, recreation. God is constantly trying to recreate his creation and bring order to the cosmos, and yeah. we keep messing it up. Yeah, yeah, we're the ones that, that keep doing that, don't we? So yeah. his, it, it, you know, the, the, the creation story for Israel, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think we were off air, but the, the ancients, all of their creation stories had to do with the creation of the state as a political entity, yeah. versus God's create, creation stories about the creation of of the, the kingdom of heaven over heaven earth and sea and so everything is is taking us to that point where he is going to take down what the nations created the gods of their world the rulers of their world the empires of their world and all the stuff that goes with it and he's telling israel a different story because they're supposed to act differently I mean, God's goal is is to subdue the nations, but to bring the nations into the kingdom, uh, their choice. Correct. But what? But we have a distinct between the kingdom of heaven and the nations, a, a boundary, just like we have for the temple, God's sacred boundary. And so, that's so the temple really is um, is a physical manifestation of a, a microcosm of what He wants the earth to be. His Correct space. And that's why death cannot dwell in there. Exactly. Uh, that reminds me of Isaiah 43, where it says, but now thus says the Lord who created you, or Jacob, he who formed you, or Israel. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And you know, that's an adoption language. Yes. It says, when you pass yes. through the waters, yes. I will be with you. When you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And then he goes into, I am the Lord your God, the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, who's your Savior. That's quite interesting because now when we read this text, 
That's resurrection text. Mm -hmm. Yep. New life, new creation. New and Isaiah, of all of the prophets, is just filled with new creation language. And it's deliverance from enemies. Obviously, the ultimate en enemy is death. Yeah, exactly. But we see in the story of Isaiah, the, the defeat of so you know the Assyrians and, and the Babylonians and the Persians, everything's in that uh, in the prophet Isaiah in in his um, yeah, book, and so uh, we kind of remove that element and forget about it. But again, it's this uh, that God's desire is for the nations to bow their knee to Him, and His what He's always doing is deconstructing the gods of the of the nations because those gods aren't going to do anything for you. And that's what we're dealing with today. Look at the gods of the nations that they want, what they want us to worship. Yeah. And so it's the gods of the nations, it equals death. Right. That does not bring life. And so everything about God's creation story is to bring life. And that's how you de determine his that's kingdom. True. It's, not, it's not surprising then why Isaiah is one of the most quoted books by the, uh, by the apostle Paul and also in the in the gospels because they right. understood the premise of god is getting ready to do a new creation yes. um yes. okay so I, I made a connection i want to get your opinion on this one because we're talking about noah and recreation mm -hmm. so i'm reading through the uh, story of noah i noticed that when yeshua says as in the days of noah shall be so yes. there is a so that means that everyone in the first century not everyone but the majority of the people they were on they understood the new creation motif, at least right. the people in tune with the prophet Isaiah. Right. Uh, but then when I began to teach this past Wednesday, I noticed that the very thing that brought chaos to the world in the garden and also in the story of Noah has been repeated all throughout that we are exactly in the same place today. Let me give you a few examples and you can expound from that if you, if you wish. Uh, right now, we know that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. I don't know how you feel about that expression in the book of Genesis. Different scholars have had different ideas. But we know that there was chaos and violence. And we do not know to what extent it was going on in the book of Genesis chapter 6. It gives us an inkling about the daughters of men and the sons of God. And we're not going to get into that topic because you know how it it's is. In with that. <laughs> uh, it's in my book. It's in your book. So. I did I broke it all down. So if anyone wants to know, I'm, we're not going to tell them here. You got to go read no, the perfect. book. You got to go. Oh, okay, perfect. So what, what I think was really interesting is if people are fighting with one another and I'm noticing the world um, is rejecting God's creation. Mm -hmm. They are murdering the babies in the womb. Right. They are rejecting God's identity by not calling themselves male or female. Right. They want to go to Mars and create a new civilization, rejecting God's gift and his sacred space, which we have defiled. Right. So we are pretty close if we go into what people say eschatology or prophetically. I mean, we are really in a really interesting period. And it's, it's by no coincidence, Dina, that they want a one world order. They want to reset. Yes. That goes back to... Let's, we could go back to the Sumerian king list. So one of the things I do in the book is trace the rise of tyranny. Like, what did that look like? So anciently before the flood, we have all these kings of uh, the Sumerians. 
who lived like these fantastically long amounts of time, 28,000 years. Uh-huh. Uh, Meredith Klein calls this the rise of divine kingship. Yeah. And then, um, so after the flood, um, and of course we don't technically know the date or whatever, uh, but after the flood, we see the, the, the kingship, the divine kingship returns. Are you there? I'm here. Just keep going. I'm just sending you a quick message. Hold on. Keep okay. Going. I'll keep talking. So uh, what happens is, you know, obviously the number one issue for, we see uh, these nomadic communities start to collect into small villages and towns. And over time, the small villages and towns turn into what we call city-states that have a king ruling over the city-state. But the number one issue, of course, is food. Mm -hmm. So once they reach a city-state status, they have figured out how to grow food on a mass scale, in particular wheat, and they figured out how to store large amounts of wheat to feed the people. So now we have this divide between urbanization and, and sort of the agricultural world. I mean, isn't that interesting? We're dealing with the exact same thing. thing. So what, what I tell people and what I say in the book is, you know, these kings recognize that they need to exercise control over the food supply and over energy. And that's, that's how they win. So the, what happens is the first world emperor, the first ruler of world empire is Sargon I of Akkad. And he basically pulls together all these city-states and rules over them from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. And he is really our first world ruler, our first world beast, if you will. And our first, uh, if we think Nimrod as a title, which I do, he was probably the first. So out of that ends up coming, you know, the Babylonian, the Assyrian, the Neo-Syrian, the Neo-Babylonian, Persian, you know, on and on and on. So the, the consistent theme in the Bible is world empire. And we see Israel under the dominion of world empire, practically the entire Bible, except for about 500 years when they had their own monarchy. Uh, We had Saul and David and Solomon, but even under their own monarchy, they had like totally rotten kings who ruled over them and lorded over them and, you know, excessive taxation and life was miserable. So there really wasn't a large amount of- You mean a Biden? There wasn't a large amount of time in which Israel really experienced the perfect, um, well, there was never a time where it was perfect, where rulers were, um, they didn't lord it over the people and make their lives miserable. There just wasn't that much time in their whole history where they got to experience that. So that's the backdrop of the Bible, world empire versus Israel. That's simple, right? Yeah. So. In the last in the last program we did together, we brought up a good point about the Bible being a political book instead of only solely theology. I, personally, I don't think the Torah is a theological book. It's a, to me, is a legal binding document yeah, that absolutely. contains historical accounts, legal accounts, yeah. civil accounts, and theology in it. But it's mainly a, the structure of who the creator is. He brings dominance over creation, and he puts Israel in a place of dominance to reveal who he is. Um, And and it's interesting that Yeshua is trying to restore that. That's exactly what everything he did. I noticed when when I began to really meditate on the new creation motif, chaos to order. All right. I don't know if you see my methodology. I haven't shown it to you. Yeah, I saw the chart. It's good. Yeah, and and you really helped me a lot with that because 
you know, when I began to connect all the different spheres of focus study that I was doing, then I, I tried to connect them all. And it was actually your recommendation of Michael Morales. When I read his book, uh, Tabernacle Prefigured, I'm thinking, I read all this stuff. How come I've never connected it before? So right. I was talking to you and reading his book that allowed me to begin to start making connections that will work to explain the, the, uh, the biblical narrative. And, and I, now I'm going back to the whole gospel and I'm reading a complete different story right. than what we were told. Yeah. And the whole message of salvation, I'm telling you, it's life-changing because what we thought it was, there's more to it. Yeah, well, no question. So, you know, as in the days of Noah, of course, uh, we rarely look at the context of that verse, which yeah. is in Matthew 24, which is dealing with the destruction of the temple and the destruction. So I, uh, at the beginning of my book, I try to show that uh, some of the filter, uh, some of the eyes we need to look at the story of Noah is through the eyes of the, of the exile. Because the Bible is not codified until after the Babylonian exile. And that's a long time from the story of Noah. So you have to figure they are going to look at the story of Noah through Babylonian, the exile to Babylon and it, their deliverance through those eyes. Mm -hmm. And so what is the number one feature? How do they end up in exile? Well, it's because of their, well, they have rejected the covenant of God, but he takes away he sends them into exile, takes away their king, their uh, kingship, their king. He takes away their identity. They move into exile. He takes away their temple. He takes away their economic. Everything is gone. Complete chaos. Complete chaos. Yeah. So that's the eye. Those are the eyes we need when we're looking at Matthew 24, because this whole thing is going to repeat itself. And so when it's talking about it as in the days of Noah, I'm suggesting that we probably need to look at that more as um, the Babylonian exile, like what did that mean? I don't think that the as in the days of Noah portion in Matthew 24 is so much about the history of Noah as it is the theology of Noah, the story. So, okay, I see what you're trying to say. So, okay, so you're not saying the story of Noah is not true. What you're saying is that the Matthew a quote, he is saying to look into the chaos from the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. And I, I guess, I, well, you yeah, and the, the number one fruit of that was the destruction of the temple, which is about to happen again in, you know, uh, Matthew 24 is dealing with the destruction of the temple. And I, I suggest, too, in the book, which I mean, you know, we could argue over this again. It's not so much the history of, of Noah as it is a connection to the destruction of the temple. And it, talking about marrying and giving a marriage and eating and drinking and all that stuff. Like I, I have puzzled over that going, what, why is that even in there? I mean, that doesn't make sense to me until you recognize what Noah functioned as a king priest right. in the sacred space, which was the ark. And so I make the suggestion that this is priestly language that we're seeing in Matthew 24, not, you know, everyone running around getting married. Yeah. Um, it, it's about it's about that the line of the king priest going back to Noah. You know that um, clearly Noah Noah was a king because God gave him sovereignty over creation, just as he did Adam. Right. Um, so that's why we have the connection with Yeshua being the. Well, and then I just mentioned because 
you know, even his name, Noah, from Noah, which means rest, which yeah. takes us back to Genesis chapter one, that at the seventh day, God rested, basically an enthronement ceremony. So we're right. seeing the same thing with Noah, even his name is given because he is going to, he is enthroned king. And the center of power will be, of course, on the mountain in, in his boat. Of course, the mountain at that time is Mount Ararat. So you got me thinking because that means that just as the earth was recreated in the story of Noah, and at that time the earth was supposed to be God's sacred space, his temple. Right. So now the physical representation of the yes. temple, when it's destroyed, like Shiloh was destroyed, uh, the temple in Shiloh, for the same mm -hmm. thing, it's a chaos, uh, uh, oppression, unrighteousness, corruption. So. Yes. So that means that the temple, as we have been saying, is a microcosm of the creation story and the order of God. We know that. Yeah. So, so now we can look at the temple from a different perspective, not only as a functioning structure, which allows us to come near God, but also as a prophetic picture of what would happen if we're not, if we are bringing chaos into God's temple. Right. It's not, right. it's not why then, now I understand, as I'm talking to you, now I'm understanding why it is that when we sin we profane his temple correct because yeah. so let me ask you a question i got this question for you i was teaching it on, on wednesday and i proposed the question to the audience but i want to ask you i've always wondered how can god bring judgment on creation if we understand that he's in covenant with israel he is bound by the covenant to Israel to defend them, to stand for them, to provide for them, and the exchange is obedience. We know that. But then he brings chaos, he brings judgment upon all the earth. And I always wonder, why, how can that legally happen once you understand law? And then uh, the covenant and the rainbow is actually that type of sign that proves that God has sovereignty still over his creation and that we are breaking the covenant that he made with humanity back in the time of Noah. Yeah. So the, the rainbow, I would suggest, and I didn't really go into a lot about the rainbow in the book, but right. it is a, it represents what we call the axis Mundi. So just right. as a temple functioned as the axis Mundi connecting heaven and earth. Right. So did the, the, it doesn't actually say rainbow. It's the bow in the sky. Right. So the, this is the connecting point between heaven and earth and every time when in the ancient world where where the point was where the two spheres met there was always uh, a temple that was always where the god if you will uh lived in that place that was between those two spheres so and then to your other point i mean this is just opinion but they were their vocation to, was to be image bearers, but was to expand Eden. Right. So they, and they, they didn't do it. Right. In fact, no one seems to ever do it. By the way, this is, the, by, by the way, if you study history, like you and I have, you've always wondered, and you saw a pattern that every king that was enthroned in the ancient world, they went out to wage war. The whole right. idea was to expand their kingdom. And I never understood that until the royal gardens. Now yeah. I get it. It's like they were trying to expand their, uh, the kingdom for their God, because that's yes. the duty of the king. Yeah, the kingdoms of this world expand through brute force power militarily by killing and destroying everything in sight. 
Correct. Now we have the kingdom of heaven. How does it expand? And so it exp Yeshua basically laid that out on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Everything he did was exactly how a king is supposed to expand territory, right. not by killing everybody that they see. This is that death life thing coming to bear once again. He expands uh, through, you know, by recreating life. The nations expand by killing everybody. Right. You know, do you think Israel, and after I ask this question, you answer, I'd like to ask you something about your book, but do you think Israel ever took away God's position just because they had a king leading them? Do you think well, I, disregarded God? Um, I'm talking about yeah. the structure of monarchy, okay? Right. I'm trying to make a point. Um, they knew that the king was the image of that invisible God. They, they knew right. They knew that the king was the prince to God, but the king to Israel. We all agree with that. But I don't believe that the, uh, the, the, the issue I'm having is people focus on Yeshua, king, 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 but they, they use that to disregard the authority and the sovereignty over the father. Hmm. And, and I'm noticing that more and more and more when even First Corinthians kind of tells you that even after Yeshua brings us a mission on his feet, that he's going to you know take the kingdom back to the father and but when i went back to ancient near eastern history dean i understood that there's really not a contradiction if you consider yeshua as a king and the father as a great king because they're working in conjunction with each other with the same purpose so my concern is that people are taking for the lack of understanding of hierarchy and monarchy and how the bible perceives it because adam was not above god but he was a king on the earth right so we sometimes I think that we need to address that because I believe Yeshua definitely will be our king and is ruling and he will rule and he's our he's our king right now. Right. Um, not literally ruling on the earth, literally, like I right. think, you know, we talked about this, but in certain circles and the systems of religion, they diminish the authority of the father and they put Yeshua above it. And to me, that's a problem. So the ancient world, uh, obviously, and we won't go into this, but we have the suzerain vassal relationship, right. yeah. but the father son relationship replicated the suzerain vassal relationship. Obviously it's somewhat different, yeah. but you don't buy when, when the King is raised up the, the next in line, it doesn't eliminate the authority of the father before him. So like David and Solomon, yeah. Uh, they're, they're probably the best example. And so um, obviously David had lots of sons, but the one destined for the throne was Solomon. And so Solomon went through an entire uh, enthronement ceremony. We see that when he went down to the Gihon Spring and Nathan right. the prophet and all that sort of thing. But that didn't negate um, the authority and, and Solomon's uh, submission to David. Right. And that's really not the point that I'm trying to make. That once I understood that hierarchy, or like you say, father and son, I was able to understand better the role of Yeshua and yes. how everything fits. It's, it's amazing to me. And um, a lot of the arguments I used to have with people or even within myself trying to understand it kind of went by the wayside because, you know, we don't have to minimize Yeshua's preexistence, his divine right. nature, who he is, but understanding how it fits in the role of a hierarchy and a governmental structure, it made perfect sense. Yeah, God would never violate that. He exactly. has an order. Again, right. this is order. So, yes. yeah. yeah. Yes. Because by him giving authority to Adam and Noah, 
by no means diminish God's sovereignty view of a creation. And of course, they're called the son of God. Adam's called right. the son of God. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You would think it'd be simple, but you know, we complicate matters. All right. Yeah. So I like your book is now very extensive in chapters. Which Five is chapters. Yes. The, it, the book is almost 50,000 words. So each chapter is approximately nine, 10,000 words, which is a pretty long chapter. Cool. Yeah. But it's not like 12 chapters and you keep going reading. And no. Reading. Okay. And I, you know me, I try to be really succinct and really focus in and just say what I need to say in as few words as I can say it. Yeah. And I want the books to be less than 200 pages because once you start going, then it turns into this academic tome. And I didn't want that. I wanted a lot of people to read it. Like this. So, like kitchen books. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Kitchen yeah. book, amazing writer. Got over like close to 600 feet, uh, pages. And it's like, I have to read it. Is like, in, just read a little page here. And yeah. everything is, is deep, you yes. know? Anyway, so. But you, you can read this book in five hours. Okay. I mean, and so I, I do write with kind of a, a flow. It has a, uh -huh. a flow in it. It just keeps you moving. So the way I do that is through the, the verbs that I use that keeps the, keeps the story moving. Okay. And uh, I have, I think I have 10 pages of bibliography at the back. <laughs> Beautiful. I want to ask you about the way you structure it. So okay. it says, I'm looking at it on my screen here, foundation, okay. architecture, yep. history, deliverance, recreation. Uh, yeah. That's quite interesting, the way you established that. I mean, I never really read a book that the chapter just says one word describing the whole chapter is kind of cool now because i know you we've studied for so long and i've we we've talked about this topic i have an idea which direction you're going to go but it'll be kind of nice to get an idea for the audience to understand you a little bit of your mindset not giving them all the secrets clearly right give them a little bit of the mindset why you pick these names to be the foundation for the titles of your chapters okay. for the solid so, foundations yeah yes yeah. Well, you know, if we're if we have any hope of understanding the rest of the book, uh, we better understand the foundations. Now, the thing I did uh, early on is I explained uh, what mythology was, what yeah. are myths, how did that work in the ancient world? Because our our first response is to go, well, that's just some fictional story about gods and primitive peoples and stuff. Yeah. So I tried to explain how you know they they're this they're the ancient stories that are passed down, but they're described in ways that are rather colorful and metaphoric and, but they're explaining real events on the ground at the time, but they're just their stories, how they, how they go through that. And but then how, I did. By the way, people don't realize that. They don't understand that they're trying to tell a story based on their whole worldview at that moment. Exactly. Once I, I think, you know, Preacher's book, you know, Preacher's book. Yeah. Uh, once I, I began to look at all the ancient texts and my mindset was, what was their worldview? How do they perceive things? I mean, because right. when you read Egyptology and you go into the Exodus experience, you're thinking, how ignorant. They believe that this was a God and that that was a God. But then I, I remind myself that people still think that bunnies laid eggs. Doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And there's oh, some yeah. fat guy going through a chimney wearing a, a red <laughs> suit. So we still have the same mindset, but different yeah, yeah, we, I mean, we have cultural stories. And so, right. you know, we have to understand the context of the cultural story, but we also have to understand 
that's the way they describe their world and we don't describe it the same way. It doesn't mean mountains and trees and forests and grass doesn't exist. It's just, they have a different way of showing it. So I, I explained mythology fairly briefly and then I explained the, the lens of the exile and how important that's going to be as a theme running through the book. So those were the two. And then I went into the cosmic kingdom, like what is that? That it's not religious, it's not scientific, it's governmental. So we're, we're looking at the whole of the cosmos operating as a kingdom. So that was that's pretty foundational. And then I addressed the concept of wisdom, which I have done in the other books. I didn't go into as much detail, but we have to understand if this, if the idea of wisdom was there before the foundations of the world, what on earth does that even mean? Exactly. So the concept of wisdom, that is the main attribute that God has given to every king in order for them to be able to rule justly and righteously. So right. wisdom's kind of an important thing. The other area, uh, the other foundation was what I call the cosmic mountain. And mountains in scripture are, you know, very, very important that we understand what that even means because the cosmic mountain is the thing that comes out of the primordial waters. It's the first dry ground. It's that place that's the stable, um, solid place. And so what does that even mean, you know, in the Bible and in the ancient world? So I felt that that concept of cosmic mountain was important. And then I ended the chapter with the waters of creation, or excuse me, the waters of chaos, because oh. that's how we begin. We begin the entire book of uh, the Genesis with the waters of chaos. And it's from those waters of chaos that God separates the waters from the waters and, and dry ground appears and, and we go from there. So that's kind of the basic outline for the, uh, for the first chapter. That's why I called it foundations, because these are foundational concepts. And if we have any hope of understanding the story of Noah, uh, we have to understand these foundational concepts. Uh, by, so the that way, by the way, you know, when we talk about mountains, um, when I begin to understand that a little bit more, like the cigarettes and, you know, yeah. the Genesis 40, I think 26, and it talks about Jacob. I'm sorry, 46. I can't remember right now. Um, when the uh, when the Lord appears to him in a dream. Oh, 28. 28. Uh, angels ascending and descending. Yeah. And then I see the Noah on the mountain. And then, yeah. you know, we have the temple, uh, everything. You know, yeah. Mount Sinai, all that's yes. huge. Yeah. Um, we have this blue, we have this whole theme repeating itself over and over and over. Yeah. And the temple on a mountain, Shiloh, yes. then you have, then people yeah. come around and say, well, the temple's in the city of David. You're going to go like, they missed the whole message. Yeah. Well, you consider that Eden was a mountain. Correct. And then we moved from Eden to Ararat and from Ararat to Sinai. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we could argue, well, well, we'll we'll jump ahead, you know, to Zion. And then we have, uh, which we call Mount Moriah. But the, the New Testament ends with the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a very significant mountain. So I talk a lot about that. But Everything is these mountaintop experiences, the transfiguration, receiving of the Torah. Yeah. yeah. So if we don't understand what they thought about mountains, good luck. And if and if you've noticed in the New Testament, every time Yeshua goes up on a mountain, says he he ascended the mountain in some form and he sat. And you're like, well, you know, do we really need that extra information that he yeah, said? I, I gotta tell you, I don't think when I begin to study all these motifs, right? I'm going like, there's no possible way that 
these people are like just making up New Testament stories. Right. Because it was, it's lining up so perfectly with the whole Torah and the prophets motifs of recreation. Yeah. It's just too much of a coinkidinky, like I always say, you know. Oh, yeah, so uh, most of the mountains where Yeshua goes up on a mountain and sits are not named. And then, of course, what I tell people is we always argue over the names, but that's irrelevant. So the mountain, of course, the top of the mountain is going to represent the, the government of, the, of that, whoever that is. And in this case, the kingdom of God. And it says he sat. So we're getting these glimpses of his enthronement throughout the New Testament. He goes up on a mountain and sits. It's I, over. You know, I got to stop you there because I always wondered how you always kept telling me about the enthronement of Messiah. And I can see I can, I'm starting to see the motif in there within the story. That yeah. so that is, that is true because sitting um yeah. no one can sit on the temple mount right unless uh, they're descended unless, from david unless they're descendant of david exactly yeah. so that's sitting true. on mountains is a big deal we just kind of go oh that's nice he's sitting with all these people yeah that's so, true. and all you know all the language of the ziggurat and explaining that i have in chapter two because now we're starting to get specific and personal with all the all of the uh the different mountains so architecture. Yeah. yeah, architecture is related to now we're building temples on top of mountains and anciently what that looked like and what that looked like in Israel's economy. So if we're going to talk about temples on top of mountains, now we have to talk about kings in temples on top of mountains. So I've got a whole section that covers that. And, I, you know, and then I talk about uh, Daniel because his whole story, remember the yeah. five and then uh, he takes... Um, I just went blank uh, from the mountain. Remember the final kingdom as yeah. a part of the mountain. So all that kind of stuff. And then I take the ziggurat concept down to the altar because the altar is made in the pattern of a mountain. Right. So now, you know, what does all that mean? Except, et cetera. So this so now, is. So now when we read, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It just came to mind. So now when we read okay. uh, Thessalonians and Paul is talking about the son of perdition sitting in the temple as if it's God. They right. would understand that if Paul is telling us some guy is going to come in and he's going to usurp the authority given to the line of David and to um, basically enthrone himself in the house of God, which is a huge no-no. Um, exactly. All the things start to start making more sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the goal here is to help the Bible make sense. Because what I tell everybody wherever I go, yeah. let's face it, there's a lot in the Bible that doesn't make any sense. So now he, our job here is to try to help that for you makes sense so chapter three is history so now i really uh what i did was i took noah out of uh canaan the promised land that whole area and i took him to with his father lamech to the region of ararat which anciently was called urartu uh, or sometimes arata and, yeah. and at a certain period in history, there was a lake there called Lake Vaughan, which it was a very mild climate, but it turns out that region was the number one grape growing region on planet earth for a long time. Wow. This is where the mo most of the wines and the vineyards came out of that area. So I just kind of backtracked. This is where I do my fictional story and I backtracked and pulled him out so that he was planting vineyards before the flood in that region and that he take took the, the vine from the vineyard that was passed from Adam to Seth. And he, Seth dug it up and he took that vine and he planted it 
in the region of Ararat around this lake called Lake Vaughan. So I develop a whole story with Noah growing and I describe the vineyards and, and, and the treading of the grapes and stuff like that. In the meantime, earlier on, I have Cain. He moved from the region and he went to Southern Mesopotamia and he became the ruler over Uruk, U-R-U-K, which is where the, the, the city that Inanna ruled over with the great white temple. So we have these two things that are grow, kind of growing up beside each other. And then at the end of chapter three, uh, I have them meet. <laughs> so uh, I think it's in that chapter. I also have the sons of God and the daughters of men. So I'm, I'm kind of, it's a, a very historical chapter. One of the other things I talk about too, because I relate the, the daughters of men to the harem, which is a political entity in the king's court. And so we see, you know, Solomon with his thousand, but that was that was a very political uh, thing that he was doing by having all these women in his harem. Right. I mean, he was making political alliances all over the planet. Yeah, people the people don't know that. They assume he was right. just some lustful guy. But when you study ancient Near East, you realize that they needed to have blood covenants between kingdoms. Yeah. So that having a grandchild, a grandkid with that king and that king would will make you think twice before you fight against each other. Right. It's, it's logical, really, if you think about yeah. it. Well, and you think the daughters of men weren't necessarily of a royal line. They were just all stuffed into the harem. But the harem ended up having a lot of political power. So you think of Bathsheba. She would have been part of the harem, if you will. But she was the mother of a king and yeah. uh, the that's, wife of another king. That's definitely an, inter an interesting twist on that story. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's kind of cool about this type of books that you can you can you able to inject in there some of your uh, worldview or what you perceived based on the, some other meaning to uh, to share with people a broader perspective maybe they never really thought about it before. Right, and I went out of my way citing sources. Now, there obviously when I'm writing my fictional stories, I have creative license, and mm -hmm. I can insert in there kind of how I see it. Obviously, we don't know whether that's true or not, but it helps move the story along. So I, if you think about the, so the political alliances and the, and the wives in is very important when we see the story of, of Solomon cutting up, you know, threatening to cut the, the child in half. Right. And so remember that the two women, I would, I suggest in, that that is a parable of the house of Israel and that the two women represent the house of Israel and the house of Judah and each vying that their son would be the ruler over the kingdom. I, I, I think that would be a perfect explanation, prophetically, what would happen in the future. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So obviously, these women are going to bat for their kid. That's my kid. And my kid's going to be the well, heir to the throne, not yours. Well, what's interesting is like, you know, Solomon and Adonai went through that. And yes. then later on, you see when uh, when uh, Solomon died, Rehoboam, one of right. his sons, and yeah. Jeroboam, who was not a son, but he was a representative of Ephraim. They were right. having that type of, uh, that's kind of interesting right there. Yeah. Yeah. So I, t I try to take those stories and see it, you know, from a more, um, I hate to use the word political, but you, but you understand the backdrop because you can't read these kings without understanding that they're going to war all the time. You know, their goal is to bring peace to the empire and make life better for, for their subjects. But this is just a constant, you know, they're constantly fighting on you know, their empire. 
steps. You know that I, when I, I was doing a course, a scholarly course about the, it was a free one. Somebody sent me uh, from uh, some, I forgot the college now, but it's a very well-known college. And they were talking about, you know, Israel and engineers. And I never really thought about a political, the Bible is a political book, but right. they made mention of the reason why Assyria didn't destroy Israel when they first got there in the beginning. Um, and I always wonder, you know, they took them captives. Oh, one of the only, one of the few kingdoms that would disperse its people. That was part yeah. of the whole thing, which is kind of interesting, you know, considering the whole master plan of God. Okay. Right. But, but it's, it's fascinating because they did not destroy uh, Israel because it's regional location and it's high level yeah. of olive oil that they produce. They didn't have the same type in Assyria. Yes. So all a political thing and I never thought about it yeah that really opened my understanding to whoa wait a minute so all these interactions between covenants and all this stuff here and there it was all basically a government in peril exactly exactly like today so that's really key I mean you I figured you know if Noah and this is in chapter four if Noah is tr uh, trading with the southern Mesopotamian region he could be trading wine because wine in Mesopotamia was for the kings. The people didn't drink wine. They didn't have access to wine. It was only for the court. Yeah. And so why, you know, vineyards were a big deal because of who had access to it and the prestige it represented for the king. Well, that, I mean, that, that shows us the story of that. Uh, who was it? The, uh, the husband of Jezebel. Nabal? The, the, the husband of Jezebel. Uh, Ahab. Yeah, Ahab. Ahab. Ahab and then Nabal. That's right. Uh, yeah. He basically took the vineyard. Right. Well, you couldn't just, I mean, you had to have some class clout royalty right. here. You're going to take yeah. a vineyard, you know, so we don't, yeah. we don't recognize the significance of things like that. So I, you know, I try to add stuff like that to help people think past that. So uh, but, chapter. But wait a minute, but wait a minute. That, but that's, that's really cool. I, I didn't think about, I understood about the location. You talked about the vineyards. So by default, when you go back to the history, and you find out where was the most renowned location from the ancient way and the yeah. ancient, about wines and vineyards. I mean, it's kind of hard to make an argument about not being the place where he would have been. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, so there's some intrigue in the, in the book <laughs> okay. for him when, when they, the boat lands on Ararat and they, they get off the boat and then they, you know, he builds a, an altar and then he builds a vineyard. Yeah. Um, and then the flood so you know that's all kind of hidden away in there for you uh, to learn for you to go out and get the book and um uh, let me make a quick plug for you okay? okay so this book right now you can find it on amazon correct yes so right now uh paperback and um audio okay so, yes uh we did have as we're recording this we had some issues with the kindle the ebook okay so uh it should be back up in a few days so um probably i'm going to say by the 10th of october the ebook should be back online well sounds good you have perfectly outlined behind you there to your left yes right there look at that perfect <laughs> all my books yeah please get and the i should mention the Spanish version, thank you to Lisa Velasquez, has already been translated. And uh, we're working on the formatting right now. And my uh, David Farley does my formatting. So he, he has a life and a business. So we're trying to get, so I'm hoping the Spanish version will be out pretty soon. 
let me know because you know I will definitely promote it for you. Yeah. All right, tell us about chapter four and then chapter five. We got about 10 minutes. Okay. And yeah. So um, I talked a little bit about Noah and I actually described the flood and I uh, kind of connect part of it to the gods and Yahweh, but you know, that's part of the fictional story. But the two sections in chapter four that are my favorite, I did something called the reed boat because the ancient world, you know, they were all reed boats and it's more than likely that Noah's Ark would have been a reed boat. That would, that was logical you know, made of bitumen, pitch, wood, and that sort of thing, and kind of tied it a little bit in there to the, you know, Yom Kippur, this, the idea of the smearing of the blood is the same motion we have for the smearing of the bitumen on, on the, on the boat to preserve and protect it, but to cover it, kafar, there's, there's a bunch of stuff in there, and I go into a lot of detail about the reeds and comparing it with, so Moses is not in a basket, okay? Moses is in a reed boat. Right. The reed boats in the ancient world, they initially would build a, uh, a sanctuary for their gods out of reeds. And then when they were finished with that, they would tear it down and they would turn it into a boat. So these reed boats in the ancient world were the place, where, were the place of the gods. So you can imagine now uh, jumping ahead. Uh, so Pharaoh, the, the god in Egypt at the time was Horus. And Horus's story is very similar to Moses's story, being hid in a boat and you know found by a family member and protected. It's very interesting. So I kind of describe, okay, when Pharaoh's daughter, oh, and let me just mention that Pharaoh was the representation of the god Horus, which is kind of interesting in ancient yeah. Egypt. Can, so, I, can, I, yeah. can I share the screen and show some uh, reed boats that I found? Uh, reed boats from Mesopotamia, so the okay. audience can get an idea. Yeah, yeah. Can you see it there? Mm -hmm. Okay, would it be a little bit more like the ones on the on the right right here? Oh, this one right here. Uh, I have to put my glasses on. <laughs> Now we do have the round boat um, and you know, that's a whole thing in ancient Mesopotamia. So um, this one, yeah, see right there, that round boat and, but how it has a hut. Yeah, that's top, pretty cool. That's the sanctuary. So that's where the God would be, that oh. the God would be represented in that space. So any of the other ones that you see that have like a hut on top yeah. of the, the boat, that's very significant. Look at that one, and that's it, really cool right here. Yeah, exactly. And so that's, it, it, this is better, a better visual of Moses. He wouldn't wow. have just been in his little basket on the, on the Nile. He Correct. would be inside this space, which was designated as a sacred space for the God in this reed boat. So now it, imagine. It would, actually, it would actually explain why the, the daughter of Pharaoh was willing to, to uh, take him and adopt him, knowing that exactly. Pharaoh said to kill them. Because he's a God. So she, she's there and then she sees in this reed boat, this person that looked, she's expecting Horus because this story oh, is the wreck is the story of Horus only it ain't Horus. It's not her father's God. It's Moses who is, you know, who is God's, you know, image bearer on earth. So this is all much has everything to do with royalty. No wonder she took him back to the yeah. palace because he would have been a god to her. That's pretty interesting. I mean, I, I didn't really never consider that. Look at this one right here. This is oh yeah, yeah. There oh. were 
So again, they would build a sanctuary out of the reeds and the pitch and the wood, and then they would tear it down and erect it. And then they would sail these boats down the Nile River from temple to temple yeah. because they represented the gods in their temples. Now I understand what you always kept telling me about Noah as a temple. Yeah. Uh, the the I'm sorry, the Ark as a temple. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't really, I didn't, I did not know that until now. Okay, I studied so, the reeds and stuff, but not that, what you said. Yeah, the, my premise is because the largest boat on the Euphrates at the time was probably about 10 feet. And so I, I tell everyone, basically Moses built an aircraft carrier sitting on the Euphrates. Like, how does that work? Right. So this is this imagery of the macro of the micro, you know? This is a, a sanctuary that represents all of the cosmos, that God is restoring the cosmos. As, as an ark building, and, and of course it ends up on top of the mountain. Um, the last section, one of, another section in, in chapter four, we'll go through this quickly. I compare the ark um, of Noah with the tabernacle and, in the wilderness. And the, this concept of both were the portable place of the presence of God, which I connect somewhat to Ezekiel chapter one, the wheel within the wheel. The idea of the portable throne of God. So, yeah, but but if you didn't make the connection between the uh, the the reed boats, right, and what it meant, people, I would have never really connected it. Right. So, that's well, and you think, isn't it interesting? Oh, so in in Egypt, they had a place called Aru, which it was um, a reeds uh, like an island of reeds, and that was considered their paradise. Their Oh man, so it says the sea of reeds. Yes. It's not the Red Sea, it's actually the sea, the sea of Correct. reeds. Now it makes sense. Got it. That's the uh, the uh, this the island of reeds in the sea is the afterlife of the Egyptians. So, so where does Pharaoh end up in the sea of reeds? So wait a minute. So that actually helps us really get a bring it home to a new creation motif that God is the one who gives resurrection and no one else. Exactly. Yeah, there's your end in the Reed Islands. <laughs> yeah, but you, know? you see, but that's that, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell the audience. In the beginning of our interview, I was telling you that we are looking at the Bible from the outside in instead of from the inside out. Yeah. And exactly. when, I, like today, I learned about the uh, the uh, the Reed boats being as temples. I did yeah. not know that, and I've been studying engineering for the last eleven years. Well, I can't say I knew it, so <laughs> just like. You know, with my nine pages of bibliography, I have learned a great deal and tried to synthesize it down in a way that's that I summarize and and, and I give you all of the the citations. You can look it up for yourself. That's cool. So chapter five is basically pulling it all together, and uh, I and now I go into the vineyard as new creation. So the vineyard is the new creation, the new garden. And we start all over again, right? And now we have a vine in the vineyard. Wait, 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 wait. So the whole miracle in Cana of the wine, yes. that is new creation? Yes. And the vine, and the vine, what do you call it? The um, the vessels, the, um, what do you call it? The wine, the wine. Yeah, the wine and the water and the clay pots. Yeah, no, not only that, but the other one, the, uh, the wine, what do you call it? The, um, oh man, I forgot. It's You'll think about, it. it's about, yeah, it's talking so about the idea of the of the vine in the vineyard 
vine, the vine in the ancient world represented the king. Uh -huh. Okay. The, the trunk of the vine. And of course, this one's producing grapes. Now we understand John 15, 16, 17, when Yeshua says he's the vine, that's a, that's a hallmark back to Solomon because wow. King Solomon represented the vine. David represented the olive tree and wow. King Saul represented the fig tree. So we have, you know, that, that whole thing. So the, the vineyard is the all new creation motif all over through and through. So I go through the graphic language of the vineyard, you know, treading the grapes and the wrath of God and the cup and, you know, all that kind of stuff in the there. Skin, I got it. Wine skin that you're yeah. talking about the wine skin. Yep. New, that makes new, sense. Yeah. So you could only, you could not put for, so as soon as the uh, harvest came, the grapes literally started fermenting almost on their, their cluster. And so they had to get them to the treading floor as quickly as they could. So you, you, can, you could not put fermented wine into a new wine skin. That was called new wine. Right. You could actually put wine that wasn't, be, wasn't fermenting, you could put into an old wine skin, but you couldn't put new wine that was fermenting into an old wine skin. So again, we have new, new creation language. So then uh, we go through that and then I kind of, this is where I, I talk about chaos in the ancient world and then I move it to cultural chaos for today. And I just go to town on everything that's going on from scientism to transhumanism to transgenderism in cultural chaos. Right, that, that, then, that's exactly what's happening right now. Exactly. And so it's all in there. And then I close out the book with, the new creation story essentially and that is going to be the resurrection of yeshua the messiah nice. the ultimate in new creation recreation however you want to do it that's awesome i i, I enjoyed going through um how you now you have to read it <laughs> yeah right no right. but but you know I, I i do actually when you read the introduction of a book sometimes you get a sense but some of the introductions of certain books they're a little bit like tedious and yeah. they don't really get to the point, so you don't really see the whole intent. Um, being that I already understand the topic, because we've discussed this at length for years, but even today, I've been able to connect different dots that I never did before. And I want to thank you for writing the book. I want to thank you for your research. I want to thank you for your friend for your friendship. And uh, uh, you know, and the, one of the things people don't know is that everything you just said, I taught it to you. I know. Uh, what can I say? I am so humbled to be in your presence. I hardly know what to say. <laughs> For the audience, please know that's a running joke. That yes, it's a running joke. <laughs> yeah, a revive. We have the whole conference. It's a thousand people. And I needed to make sure I told the audience that it was Dina who taught me everything I knew. So I like to get her back. Anyway, Dina, I love you. Thank you so much for joining us. I pray that um, your book just hits a huge. And we need to get your books into uh, logos. Amen. A resource for them. And uh, if you want to know more about Dina Dye's books, uh, please go to Amazon or go to your website, right? Tell us your website and where they can reach you. Yeah, uh, foundationsintora.com. Uh, the books will give you the link right to Amazon and they're on Amazon right now in Audible and paperback with Kindle coming soon. That sounds great. Thank you guys for joining us today. It's a pleasure Thank and an you. honor always having the opportunity to share with you the beautiful things we're learning about the Bible. Remember, like John Walton always says, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. So it's time for us 
to learn to read the Bible from the inside out. And that's exactly what Dina is doing with her book. So thank you, Dina, my friend. Love you very much and much success to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.